Morning. I was delayed, but thanks. <laughs> it's good to see you guys here this morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning where your mercy is new, and we're thankful for this time to sing to you and to pray to you and to hear from you. And so we ask now that you would speak through your word, send your spirit into our hearts to form them into hearts that are eager to become more like Christ. And we need you to do that because it's only in your power uh, that that life change happens. And so we want that now, and we ask that you would grant it in your son's name. Amen. As you just heard from John, and as you hear every week, we here at EBF describe ourselves as a community of sojourners. And we feel as a church that this word captures well who we are as a people gathered here in Evanston. And in one sense, it's a good word. Sojourning is a, is a good idea for us because, um, just because of earthly things. We have a lot of students here who are called to Evanston for a season of preparation. We have some young professionals here who come to start careers and families. And not all of us are in such temporary life stages, but, but a lot of us are. And so we feel that uh, we are a community of sojourners here. And especially right now in this season, we feel as a church like a community of sojourners. Most of you are aware that our lead pastor is leaving and will soon be starting a search for another. And there are other church staff positions that need to be filled. And even beyond that, we're sending off members from our own family today who are going on to new jobs and new places and new churches. So in this sense, it feels appropriate to call ourselves a community of sojourners. And in another sense, we are also sojourners in the way that all Christians are sojourners. As this earth is not our home, we are traveling on to a heavenly city, following the way of Christ towards the restoration of all things, awaiting the day when he will make things in heaven and on earth new. And at certain times, we're very aware that this has not yet happened. But being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not a static activity. It's not a one-time event where we accept Christ into our heart, and then everything stays the same until we die and go to heaven. Rather, being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a dynamic activity. It's a following of the Spirit in all his freedom and power as he leads us in the way of Christ. To be a Christian is to be a sojourner, one who is on the journey of discipleship, a journey that begins and ends with God. So here we are at EBF, a community of sojourners, finding ourselves on the journey of discipleship. And obviously, we're each at different stages on this journey. Some of us haven't actually yet begun the journey of discipleship. Others of us are just starting out, and still others have been walking with Christ for 50-plus years. So as a church, we've kind of owned this sojourning disposition and language, and we recognize that we are on the journey of discipleship. But here's my fear. I fear that we've become comfortable with the language of sojourning, but we still resist the lifestyle of sojourning. We don't like the lifestyle of sojourning because we're afraid of change. And sojourning involves change, after all. So yeah, we're comfortable with the language of sojourning, and we accept the idea of sojourning. And at the beginning of announcements every week, you hear that we describe ourselves as a community of sojourners. And so we accept the language and we accept the idea, but I fear that sometimes we resist 
the lifestyle of sojourning. And as a church, as we enter this season of change, it's a season of transition. And I mean that corporately because we're looking for a new pastor, and I mean that individually because people are moving or graduating or getting married. And these transitions bring a lot of emotions with them. We're fearful and we're hopeful. We're despairing and we're eager. And in all these emotions, there lies an opportunity. An opportunity for us as a church to embrace not only the language of sojourning, not just the disposition of, oh yeah, we're sojourners, but actually living the lifestyle of those who are sojourners, those who are on the journey of discipleship. So today we're going to take a break from Ecclesiastes. Jason will pick that back up next week. But for this week, we're going to spend some time in Psalm 121. So turn there in your Bibles and let's stand as we're able for the reading of God's word. The 121st Psalm, and I'll read the whole thing beginning in verse 1. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. You can have a seat. This psalm is a song of ascents, which would have been sung as the Israelites made their journey to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the highest city in Palestine. So much of the journey would have been upward, ascending. So in our Bibles, Psalms 120 through 134 are called the songs of ascents because they were written to be sung throughout the years as God's people made their journey to Jerusalem, to the heavenly city. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing this song of ascents for you. But before we go further, I should mention that there's a wonderful book about these psalms called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Discipleship in an Instant Society. It's by Eugene Peterson. It's devotional and thoughtful and creatively written, and I commend it to you. If you want to borrow this copy, come find me after service. Otherwise, it's only a couple bucks on Amazon, and I really think it would be worth your time. So Psalm 21 is one of these songs of ascents, written for people to sing as they made their journey to Jerusalem, written for us to embrace as we walk this journey of discipleship. So here we go. Let's look a little more closely at this psalm, beginning in verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills... From where does my help come? The psalmist is making his journey to Jerusalem, and already in verse 1, he's looking for help. And he's looking for help because his eyes have gone to the hills. And at first, this seems innocent enough. After all, he's walking through Palestine, which is a region filled with hills and mountains. How could his eyes not see the hills? 
But the question is, why does looking at the hills make him cry out for help? Maybe he's just weary of hiking and he's wondering how he's going to make it over yet another mountain. Maybe. But there's something else about the hills that might make someone on the journey to Jerusalem call out for help. The hills are where people offered their sacrifices to idols. This is where people would worship Baal and Dagon and Shemesh. They worship them on the hills. You might remember in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal, and it's this sort of contest between Yahweh, the God of Elijah and Israel, and Baal, the idol that these prophets worship. Right? That contest happens on Mount Carmel because Mount Carmel is where you worshipped Baal. You worshipped idols on mountains, on hills. So the psalmist is making his journey to Jerusalem, and along the way he's passing all these hills where people are offering sacrifices to idols, and he's getting tired, and they're offering these sacrifices in order to get help. Sacrificing to idols was a way to manipulate the gods, to get them to do something for you, to get them to help you. And as the psalmist grows weary, his eyes stray to the hills, and it's tempting. From where does my help come? Surely on the journey of discipleship, we ask this question 10,000 times. We ask because we do not know. We ask because we need someone to teach us. We ask because we need to remind ourselves. We're walking this journey of discipleship, and it's not long before we need help. And we ask because our eyes have strayed to the hills, and our eyes are always straying to the hills. Now, our hills are not their hills. No one today is offering sacrifices to Baal, but the temptation remains. There's still a lot of cheap help being sold. Try this diet, use this drug, implement this budget, move to this location, buy this piece of technology, read this book, rub this essential oil on it. Now, I'm not condemning diets or books or even essential oils. I'm just trying to show that we live in a world full of self-help. And on the journey of discipleship, self-help does not work. From where does my help come? We find our answer in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, I don't think I need to say much about this verse because it's pretty clear and it's probably pretty familiar to most of you. But I hope, I hope this verse doesn't pass us today without forming our hearts. Don't let it pass over you just because it's familiar. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. On the journey of discipleship, our help does not come from the hills. Our help comes from the Lord who made the hills. And these first two verses set the framework for this song of ascent. Together, they establish the rules of the road. On the journey to Jerusalem, on the journey of discipleship, our help comes from God. Verses 3 and 4 then begin to tell us what this help from the Lord will look like. Let's look at those verses. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. 
God will not allow his people on their journeys of discipleship to stumble. Their feet will not move. They will not slide. They will not trip. They will not take a single step in the wrong direction. And that seems like strong assurance given to those on the journey. And it requires the constant and careful attention of God. The second half of verse 3 and verse 4 claim that God will neither slumber nor sleep. It's remarkable how much we sleep. We have to sleep every single day for about a third of the day. And if you try to go more than a day without sleep, bad things start to happen quickly. And if you don't believe me, you've never been to a middle school lock-in. Human beings need to sleep. But the Lord does not sleep. He is always awake. And there's more. Even when we're not asleep, we slumber, we grow weary. When I babysit the Wilson kids for three hours, I'm done. I might be physically awake, but really I'm slumbering. It drains me. And now all the moms in the room know I'm a lightweight. But seriously, if I watch the kids for a few hours, I get exhausted. I can't do it anymore. God is not like that. He never grows tired of caring for his children. He always watches over them with complete attention and energy, with utter delight. He watches us for three hours and then four, and then a day, and then a year, and 20 years he has watched over us, and in every single moment of it, he has given us his full attention not missing a thing. He does not sleep. And there's more. We might be awake and not tired and yet remain totally unaware of the things happening all around us. Like the passive dad who's ignorant of the awful day his 13-year-old daughter just had. So he sits there on his couch watching the Cubs game without a clue that his daughter wants to talk about the bad day at school she just had not having the slightest idea that she just wants to hug from her dad. He might be physically awake, but in every other way, he's asleep. But God is not like that. He never sleeps in any way. He is always fully awake, always completely aware, and ready to respond perfectly to our every need. He does not miss an opportunity to comfort us when we come to him. He does not sleep. And there's more. How many times have you been totally blindsided? Absolutely floored by a phone call that you didn't see coming. You know the kind of news I'm talking about. And you can probably now picture the exact place you were when you got such a phone call. And in that moment, time feels like it's moving in slow motion and at a thousand miles an hour. And in those moments, God is not surprised. He is not caught off guard. Nothing ever blindsides him. Nothing ever floors him. He saw that phone call coming from 10,000 years ago, and he's been totally in control the whole time. He who keeps you will not slumber. And as Christians, we find a lot of comfort in the way that Christ shares in our humanity. He shares in our weaknesses, and we should. There's a lot of comfort to be found in the reality that in Christ, God became like us. But the other side of it is, God is nothing like us. 
And there's a lot of comfort to be found in that too. We sleep all the time, but God, the one who keeps us, will neither slumber nor sleep. Verses 5 and 6 tell us more about the God who helps us along in this journey of discipleship. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. These verses show the totality of God's help for his people. He is the God who keeps us. He is the shade on our right hand. Because he shields us, the sun will not strike us. The sun can do a lot of damage. And I'm not just talking about the shameful reality that I can get sunburned if I sit outside for 30 minutes eating lunch. For an Israelite traveling on the journey to Jerusalem, heat stroke was a serious concern. But this verse says that the sun will not strike you because the Lord himself will be your shade. Walking through Palestine, at times there is nothing more desirable than shade. Shade protects you from the heat of the sun, guarding against heat stroke and hallucinations and dehydration. Shade protects you from the light of the sun, guarding against sunburn and skin cancer. But it also says that the moon will not strike you, and that's a little more perplexing. The sun can do a lot of damage, but the moon seems pretty safe. So what does it mean that the Lord will protect us from the moon? And I think there are two options, which are both taken by various scholars, and I think they're both legitimate, so I'm going to talk about them here. The first option is that the psalmist is not actually referring to the moon as a dangerous thing, but rather using day and night to signify the totality of the Lord's protection. He will keep them during the day, and he will keep them at night. After all, there's a lot of things that could do damage at night, even if the moon itself is not one of them. So that could be what the psalmist had in mind when he wrote that the moon will not strike you. The other option is that the moon striking you is a figure of speech that represents insanity. Ancient writers used the word moonstroke to refer to mental illnesses. It's where we get the word lunatic. And with all the mental and emotional energy it takes to, take, to make a journey to Jerusalem, one could see why the psalmist's assurance that the Lord will protect you from moonstroke would be a comfort to the Israelites. So both of these options seem pretty legitimate, and I don't actually think they're mutually exclusive. Whatever the case, it's clear that the psalmist is teaching that the help we get from God is a total help, covering us in the day, covering us in the night. We get God helping us on the journey of discipleship, and his help towards us is his total protection of us. On the journey of discipleship, our help does not come from the hills. Our help comes from the Lord who made the hills, and he will be the shade that protects us on our journey, keeping us from the sun and from the moon. And if that wasn't total enough, verses 7 and 8 go further. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So yes, the Lord will keep you from the sun and the moon, but now he will keep you from all evil. In everything, he will keep your life. How many going outs and coming ins do we experience? We are always going out somewhere or coming in somewhere. People are always going out from us or coming in to us. This is part of what it means to be a community of sojourners, after all. 
Sam Griffin, as you go out, the Lord will keep you from this time forth and forevermore. Hudson family, as you go out, the Lord will keep you from this time forth and forevermore. Lancaster family, as you go out, the Lord will keep you from this time forth and forevermore. Surely in all our comings and goings, the Lord will keep us. He will keep our very lives. On the journey of discipleship, he will keep us from all evil. Now, there's a tension that's been building here, and we need to address it. It would be wrong to move on from this psalm without giving voice to the tension. This psalm is optimistic. The Lord will keep you. He will not let your foot stumble. He will not sleep. The sun will not strike you, nor the moon. He will keep you from all evil. He will keep your comings and goings. This psalm is optimistic. But there's a tension growing. The tension is that our experience at times is at odds with the optimism of this psalm. Our experience at times is at odds with the optimism of this psalm. So what do we do? Because sometimes our feet do stumble. And sometimes it feels like the Lord is sleeping. And sometimes we suffer from moonstroke. So what do we do? In those moments, in the seasons of life where this psalm feels impossible to believe, what do we do? What should I say? As I was preparing this sermon, I was increasingly aware that some of us in this room right now are in seasons of life where it's very hard to believe this psalm. And my heart goes out to you, and I'm thankful that you're here. And I've been praying that this psalm will not seem naive to you or untrue to you, and that it will not pass over you as something that seems like it would be encouraging to some people, but not so much for you right now. The psalm says the Lord will keep you from all evil. And frankly, that can be hard to believe. 20 seconds of the nightly news shows us more than enough evil for the day. So our experience is at odds with the optimism of this psalm, and what do we do? The deceiver wants us to believe that in those moments, in the moments when it's hard for us to believe this psalm, that there are only two options. The father of all lies wants us to believe that there are only two options. The first option he wishes for us to choose is to conclude that this psalm is a lie. The psalmist was mad, naive, a liar. And the temptation to believe this is strong. And it lets us disregard what God has said to us in his word. And the temptation to believe this is also subtle. Satan does not need you to reject the truth of scripture full stop. He is more than content to have us believe in the truth of scripture, but live as practical atheists. He is more than content to have us believe that Psalm 121 is true at times in certain seasons, but misguided and irrelevant at others. He is more than content to have us walk out of here saying that Psalm 121 today isn't really applicable to me. The second option that the deceiver wants us to choose is to conclude that our experience is a lie. The psalm says that the Lord will keep us from all evil. Therefore, my experience of evil must not really be that. 
So we numb ourselves from our experience and we pretend that there is no evil after all. Someone we love begins to show signs of moonstroke, suffering from the onset of one mental illness or another. But no, 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 no. That's, it's not moonstroke. It's just a phase. So we downplay the evils all around us because that makes it easier to believe this psalm. So either we deny the truth of the psalm or we deny the truth of our experience. And the evil one wants us to think that these are the only two options. He wants us to pick one. That would resolve the tension, after all. But the journey of discipleship is full of tension. Tension between a God who is totally in control and a sinful and broken world where we learn to trust him. Tension between us already being saved in Christ and all the ways in which we have not yet been saved. Tension between the truth of this psalm and the validity of our experiences. The Bible is the most realistic literature in the world when it comes to evil. It never pretends that everything is fine and there is nothing to worry about. It shows us with shocking clarity that everything is broken and there is plenty to worry about. Even these songs of ascents are full of acknowledgement that things are not the way they are supposed to be, full of cries to God for help. So for those in the room who are in seasons where this psalm is hard to believe, I pray that you will not think that you must either disregard this psalm or your experience. This psalm is not claiming that we will never suffer a foot that slipped, as many sprained ankles and misguided steps would indicate. It is not saying that you will never suffer from sunburn or mental illness. The psalm is saying that all such things will not end your journey of discipleship, the journey that begins and ends with God. The optimism of this psalm is not naive. It's a Christian optimism rooted in the character of God himself. Remember that verses 1 and 2 set the framework for the rest of the psalm. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. These verses set the framework for the psalm. They set the framework for the journey of discipleship. Our help is not from the hills, from the Lord who made the hills. And on our journey of discipleship, it will not be long until we need help. And our help is from the Lord. Though our eyes stray to the hills, our help is from the Lord. And the Lord does not sleep. He never sleeps. So when you're tired after another semester and you need to rest, the Lord will watch over you. And when you can't fall asleep because you're up at night worried about your kids, he's awake too and he is not worried. And in the nights when you wake up at 3.30 from yet another nightmare, in those moments, God is fully awake, right there, ready to comfort you perfectly. So part of the reason we need to be a community of sojourners on this journey of discipleship is because of the tension that exists between our experience and this psalm and how that tension causes our eyes to stray to the hills. 
We need this community because in the moments when it's hard for me to see the goodness of God, I need you to show it to me. We need this community because in the moments when it's hard for me to hear the wisdom of his voice, I need you to listen to it for me. We need this community because when trials come on the journey of discipleship, I lift my eyes to the hills because it's hard for me to believe that the Lord will keep me on this going out or on that coming in. But at the end of the day, this psalm remains true. At the end of the journey of discipleship, we will look back and see how perfectly he has kept us from all evil. And if you need help today believing that, Ask one of the saints in the room who has been on the journey for 50 plus years. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? There is another hill in scripture, a hill called Calvary. And it's the hill where the journey of discipleship starts. The journey that begins and ends with God. And the tension that we spoke of earlier exists on this hill too, as Christ himself feels forsaken by God. It is the hill where Jesus died on a cross, himself becoming our substitute because of sin. It is the hill where Christ took all of our sinfulness and brokenness and fear and put it to death in himself to to purchase our freedom. This is the hill where the journey of discipleship starts. It starts with the death of Christ, and in his death, our death too. Discipleship starts with death. But it does not end with death. Rather, with resurrection. The journey of discipleship begins and ends with God, which is to say it carries on into eternity. The journey of discipleship is a journey from death to life. And on this journey, the living God will keep us. He will always keep us from this time forth and forevermore. EBF, in Christ, we are given not only the language of sojourning, but we are freed to embrace the lifestyle of sojourning, walking the journey of discipleship with the God who is our help. This God does not change. He is the same yesterday and today and forever, when we have a senior pastor and when we don't, when we're moving to a new city and when we're not, when we're graduating, when we're getting married. God does not change. He does not sleep. He is the same. He is the same. Discipleship is about staying awake, alert to what God is doing in the world and what he is calling us to. And through it all, we find hope in the God who does not change, the God who is the beginning and the end of all our sojourning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Psalm 121 and the glorious assurance it gives us. We look to you as your people, as those who are on the journey of discipleship. And we confess that our eyes often stray to the hills and that we know on this journey we need your help. And we admit that at times this psalm is hard for us to believe. I ask again that you would give us hearts of faith even today that we might trust again your steady and scarred hands which hold us. 
You are the God of this community of sojourners, and we find much comfort in that. You have promised that you will keep us from all evil. You have told us that you will never sleep. You are the source of all our help. Be with us as a church in this season of transition, and give us even more hope for the good things you're calling us to. Be with those who are going out from us, and keep them as you have promised to do. In all these things, give us faith that Christ Jesus remains the same, never threatened in his reign as our crucified king. We pray this in his name. Amen.